Today, uh, we have a, um, a special message. Well, you might kind of consider it a throwaway, uh, but we have a real kind of a gap, a Sunday in between the end of our Christmas series and the startup of the book of Romans that we're going to get into next week. And so today what I wanted to talk about is New Year's resolutions. Uh, statistically, 50% of you are going to make them, and uh, for reasons we'll have to explore. Uh, but would you, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and I want to read the first two verses there, a passage that's probably very, very familiar to most of you, if not all of you. And if you don't mind, would we stand with me as we read this together? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The text reads as follows. Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we invite you to move by your Spirit in this place, to be our teacher, to be our guide, Lord, to, to be our comforter, and Lord, to lead us in the paths, not simply of your righteousness, Lord, but of that life that you have ordained for us, that place of fulfillment and satisfaction and richness. We confess that there are certainly many, if not almost all of us in here today, who come here with some degree of frustration and disappointment and irritation with where they find themselves in life today. And I ask God that your Holy Spirit would grant us the wisdom that we might begin to understand our place in this life, Lord, and your plan for us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Surveys have found that every new year that 50% of Americans basically have resolved to make what they call, quote, lasting changes in who they are. Uh, this has come to be known to us as the New Year resolution. Uh, the word resolution literally means a, a firm decision to do or not to do something in an effort to improve the quality of one's life. The decision in itself to form a resolution is really actually pretty arbitrary since the opportunity to make changes in your life is always present. Uh, nevertheless, most of us kind of imagine that a new calendar will be the impetus of making uh, a new you coming into the new year. The motive is completely understandable. I mean, we all have a lot of junk in our life. There are things about you that are not helpful. Um, disappointments that you have received, disappointments you have shared with others and caused others to feel, maybe harmful or even hurtful things in your life, both for yourselves and for others. These are things that bring a significant level of personal unhappiness. And let's be honest, we all want to be happy. There's not a single one of us who says, it is my intention today to be unhappy. 
I wish it was because we tend to get very successful at that. But each year, the researchers compile the list of the top 10 resolutions that 156 million of us are going to make this next year. And uh, they may sound familiar. I want to stop kind of in Letterman style with a number 10 of the top 10 and work to number one. And as you listen to them, think about whether or not this is something that at least passively in your mind you are saying, yeah, I wish I could get a handle on that. I really wish I could conquer that area of my life. Number 10 on the list is, I want to get organized. Apply to anybody in the room, I want to get organized. I mean, the idea is I want victory over the chaos and the confusion and the disorder in my life. Number nine, I want to help others. Victory over my inherent selfishness. I see selfishness so clearly in others. I'm sure it doesn't exist in me. So I won't even bother with that one. Number eight is, I want to learn something new. I would say victory over mental stagnation. Number seven, get out of debt. Victory over the financial stress that haunts so many lives. Number six, I want to quit drinking. Victory over dependence and addiction to alcohol and maybe a list of other things. Number five, I want to enjoy, enjoy life more. Victory over the mundane, the disappointing. Number four is I want to quit smoking. Victory over dependence and addiction once again. Or number three, <clears throat> this is where we're starting to get kind of personal. Number three is I want to lose weight. Victory over the bulge. 66% of us are significantly overweight, but who's counting? Number two, I want to get fit. Victory over poor health and low energy. But number one, and I have to admit this surprised me, I want to focus on relationships. More than 50% of Americans vow to appreciate their loved ones, their friends and family more this year than they did last year. So, how well is it that you and I do historically with regards to these kind of decisions? Well, again, the researchers tell us that only 8% of Americans feel like they ever succeed in fulfilling even one of their resolutions for the year. In fact, 80% say that by January 20th, they've already lost the handle and have given up that they're going to make any lasting change, which may explain why most of us, myself included, just stay away from the whole practice. Why even set yourself up for disappointment and failure? But I think part of the question we need to ask ourselves is, why is it that when we sit down and say, you know what, I'm going to change this about myself, that our chances of actually being successful at that are so very small? so very, very low. Well, first of all, I think that there's some common myths out there, or maybe they're just misconceptions. I think that part of it is that we think that change comes about magically. We believe in a magical thing. It's almost like if I want it, then I can win it. Uh, it's the Jiminy Cricket philosophy on life. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are, 
Anything your heart desires will come to you. I grew up wishing on stars, and they didn't seem to be very helpful. But it's kind of a mindset. In fact, baby boomers in particular are referred to as a generation that believed in magic because we grew up watching the Magic Kingdom on television and listening to Jiminy promise us that if we just want it, we can have it. It's the kind of thing we say, you can become anything you want to become. What a bunch of horse pucky. I mean, that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. I may want to be an NBA star, but if you're not seven feet tall, do you know what the odds are anymore of making it into the NBA? There's only 700 of these guys in the entire world. Just that in itself is bad. If you throw in the other things like not being tall, not being talented, not being fast, and not being all that bright, my chances go down each time to basically zilch. It's not going to happen. And that applies just about every endeavor that I might think to set out in. So that one first thing we find is a lot of people, they kind of just kind of think it's going to happen. Like, I'm destined to be great and therefore I will be great. Or there's the problem of having abstractions without following up with any kind of an action. What do we mean by that? Well, an abstraction can be somebody saying, you know, this year I'm going to quit smoking. An action would be, therefore, you would give up cigarettes. But there are a lot of people saying, this is going to be the year, but after I finish this last cigarette... It's going to be the year, and they just continue to say, this is going to be the year. There's the concepts out there, but there's never a follow-through. Uh, how about this one? I love it. I'm going to eat healthy food. <clears throat> Can I have another donut? <laughs> or how about I'm going to lose weight. <sighs> I just don't want to have to exercise. I'm going to manage my stress better this year. I just don't want to have to slow down or give anything up or change my schedule, or alter my lifestyle at all. In other words, a lot of people really have, live in the world of good intentions. They, in their mind, they have the kind of the abstract lined out, but in terms of coming up with an action plan and the follow-through, well, there's not a lot of it that goes on. And so, you know, it's, it's like somebody said, it's like doing the same thing over and over and th expecting something different is kind of the definition of insanity. I think that's a little unkind. I think it's more a definition of staying the same and not really seeing anything alter. But there's also misconceptions that Christians sometimes can have. I mean, I call it the glide and abide philosophy. I don't really have to do anything because... If it's not God's will, it won't change. Now, it's funny because one of the things we find in Scripture is a lot of biblical passages about us responding in faith. In other words, faith is the confidence to step forward and actually act. And James made the statement very clearly. He says, you show me your faith without doing something, and I'll show you my faith because I'm doing something. In other words, we understand this concept that if we have faith, it usually produces a response on some level. There's a story of a tightrope walker by the name of the great Blondini back in the 19th century when tightrope walking was really the rage. He decided that he would outdo everybody else, and he had a, a, a cable stretched across Niagara Falls. 
And he decided that he would walk across that. And he got up there and he took his bar and he walked across and then he walked back and then he rode his bicycle and then he came back. And he did a number of things. Did handstands, headstands, hanging over the falls. One slip up, there's no net. He's going to perish completely. And finally he got back to the American side where the largest crowd was gathered and he asked the crowd, he says, do you believe that I can carry a man on my shoulders across the falls? And everybody said, yes. He answered, do you have a volunteer? (laughs) The crowd went silent. You see, it's one thing to have that kind of faith in the abstraction. It's quite a different thing to actually have faith in action. And that's often where sometimes as believers, we kind of get stuck. When Jesus was talking, had a, had a man, a child who was demon-possessed brought to him, and his disciples couldn't uh, accomplish anything, so Jesus cast the demon out, and they asked him, what was our problem? Jesus said, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. In other words, if you really want to see the demon come out, you have to realize that you don't have the power to exercise it, but if you pray and you fast and you seek God's face... He will move in accordance to your asking. And sometimes change comes because we ask God earnestly that it would. In fact, one of the things that Jesus warned you and I, as he said in John 16, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, we should understand that there are going to be bumps and barriers. There's going to be pitfalls and traps. When he says things like, if you say this mountain be moved, it will be moved and cast into the sea. The fact that you even have to have that conversation with a, a terrestrial obstacle like that tells you that you're going to run into obstacles that aren't simply going to part because you have showed up. They're going to part because you have responded. Moses lifted up the rod and he struck the water and the water parted. Joshua told the priests, carried the ark and as your foot touches the lip of the water, the water will part. And I can see the whole conversation amongst those priests as they're looking at the raging Jordan in flood stage. And, you know, I see a number of priests volunteering to say, you know, I think it's your turn to carry it. You know, or I'll I'll take, you take the front, I'll take the back. It's, It's this idea that you're going to go and you're going to step out and see what happens. It's, it's one of those dynamics that sometimes gets overlooked. When Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. And then he adds, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's an interesting combination. He says, there's great grace on me. There's so much grace on me that I work even harder because I know that my work will be blessed. And yet sometimes I hear people saying, you know, I'm just waiting for God to move. I love it when people say, well, I'm not really serving any place because I'm just waiting for the Lord to show me what my ministry is. Well, let me guarantee you this. Your ministry isn't sitting and waiting for what your ministry is. Your ministry is to do whatever God has set in front of you. That's why James says when you see somebody who is in need and you just say, well, blessings, be warm to be filled and walked on, essentially what you're doing is seeing ministry right in front of you, but you're not responding to it because it's not what you want to do. And that's kind of the difference is that, you know, work by definition is, is not something that's terribly appealing. I've often defined the difference between work and play this way. 
Play is something that you work very hard at, but you can quit whenever you want. Work is something that you work very hard at, but even when you want to quit, you have to keep on working. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. So even though yesterday should have been a day of rest for me, when the plow came down the street and created this massive berm across my driveway, you know, I mean... I told my wife, don't worry about it. I'll just rev the engine and plow through it in the morning. You know, it doesn't, doesn't work. I mean, you just, you just realize it's not going to melt quickly. It's going to take labor. And there's something in our minds sometimes that we think that God doesn't expect us to work hard at anything because we have faith, when in fact, uh, 25 times, I counted them yesterday, 25 times, Paul talks about how hard he and others worked in doing the ministry of the gospel. So that God created man, he, he ordained him to work the Garden of Eden, and nothing has changed since then. Man still, and particularly because of our sin, works and labors by the sweat of our brow. So that even in terms of the spiritual life, that we look to see certain disciplines develop in our life. Well, I need to learn how to pray, I need, how to, need to learn how to read the Word, and what you have to understand, there is a degree of just effort that has to be applied in all of those things. In fact, I have to confess that I probably could have done a much better job preparing this message today, but I wanted to catch a football game yesterday. And I, I don't know if you caught it, so you probably were praying during that time, but nonetheless... And afterwards, I'm sitting there as I'm laying in bed last night at 4 o'clock this morning, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I should have, I better get up and work on this some more because I really kind of rushed through that to get to the completion. Because there's a thing that in you and me that wants to go in the path of least resistance, but the path of least resistance is also the path of the lowest accomplishment. I remember the great NBA star Larry Bird who was, you know, in many ways wasn't the greatest athlete, and yet he was an unbelievable pure shooter. He could sink a ball from just about any place on the court. And someone asked, how did you get so good? And he said, I used to go home in high school every day, and I would shoot a thousand shots on the basket every day. A thousand shots from various places on the court every day, in my life. And that's how I got really good. It became unthinking. But you have to understand that muscle memory doesn't just pop in. You're not born with it. There's a certain sense of developing. Even when you talk about teaching the Bible, do you know what they say? That people aren't even effective communicators in a pulpit contest until they have at least taught 300 times. So that the more you do anything, the more adept you become at it. So does that mean it's not of grace? Well, it's all of grace because Jesus was very clear in telling us, apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no power in anything that we do in terms of the ability to impact and change lives. But at the same time, Paul says, I had such grace on me that I worked that much harder. And I can just speak for myself that why do I put the time and the energy into trying to prepare a message week after week and you know, two or three times a week? Why do I do that? Because I know that God's grace is on me to do what I do. 
And it makes it worthwhile. It makes me say, you know, it's worth the energy. If I thought that God didn't have any grace, I'd get up here and just bumble along long enough to have you say, now go away and never come back. Because the end of the day is that it's all just paper and ink. It's just words. God gives its power. And it's the same thing in terms of anything that you do, even your occupation, your busyness that you're involved in. You have become skilled and adept at something that you do because you have put the requisite 10,000 hours that it takes to become an expert at anything. But you also know unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors does so in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, he watches it in vain. So that there's this interesting co-laboring together with God that really is intended by us to enable us to become successful at what we are called to do. And it's not just simply the thing that we simply walk up one day and bam, we're great or we're even good or we're even passable. There's a certain experience that comes into our life that causes us to have confidence that God's grace will be there. Now, sometimes when Christians go on the other side, they'll just simply say, well, it's not my fault. I've had people tell me that my bad behavior must be God's will because I'm so good at it. Or that God made this, me this way and I can't help it. Or even the devil made me do it. Or how about I was provoked and I can't control my reactions. You see, especially when we talk about relationships, which purportedly are so important to us, most of us are waiting for the other person to adjust themselves to our temperature rather than the other way around. And then I'm speaking to both men and women in this regard, that there are so many wives who are saying, I just wish my husband would change. Well, let me tell you a fact about life. You have zero capacity to change another person. You have zero capacity to change another person. You can want it, you can wish it, but that's a decision of their will. And this may come as a surprise to many women. Your husband very likely has the same thought about you. I just wish she would change. I just wish she would change. And so we sit back and we try to to give the impetus of change, whether through manipulation or threatening and things like that. And the reality is there's only one person on the planet whom you can change, and that's you. There's only one person whom God expects to see change in, and that's you. There's only one person for whom you can be accountable, and that's you. You can't be that for anybody else. And so the responsibility for me when there's something that rubs my life and creates tension and conflict is not to see how I can change you, but rather how I can begin to change me. I learned years ago when I was doing, used to do a lot of marriage counseling, and I learned that I had to really begin the conversation with any couple I was talking to in the same place. And here was the place. I'd look at the man and say, how committed are you to saving your marriage? I look at the woman, how committed are you to saving your marriage? And if they weren't worth 100% committed to saving their marriage, then I'd simply say that I don't think I can help you. Because the only person that can save your marriage is you. The only person who can pray that God would heal and fix this thing, the only person who can forgive the sins and the transgressions and the issues and the angers and all the things that go on between you is you. You can't do it for each other. You have to do it for yourself. And you have to begin by saying, I'm all in. 
And I'll do whatever it takes because I recognize not just simply the value of the relationship, but because you recognize this is God's will. This is God's will. Now, I love my father-in-law, 92 years old, and somebody asked him the other day, how did you live to be 92? And he said, I just wake up every morning. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is it's a whole lot more to his life than just waking up every day. There's a whole lot of reasons why he wakes up every day. And the same thing is true about being married when people say, how do you stay married 45 years? Well, it wasn't just simply by waking up every morning. It's determining that nothing will interfere with that relationship. It's determining that this is critically important and doing whatever work needs to take place to be willing to say, God, change this about me. Alter me and transform me. That I can become somebody that my wife wants to be married to and is thankful that she's married to. In fact, one of the things that Paul said I thought was interesting in Acts 26, in verse 20, uh, when he was speaking about the gospel, he says, all must turn from their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. We prove that we have changed. How do we give demonstration that we are a different person? In essence, by the things that we have done. But how do we really bring that to pass? He says, by changing and turning to God. We turn to God and we say, God, I want to begin to focus on you. In fact, I love the way Eugene Peterson translated or, or the paraphrased this passage that we opened with. In his the message, he, he says the following. He says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. In other words, as a follower of Jesus, there should be some cultural conflict. I often tell people all evangelism is cross-cultural. All efforts to share Christ is sharing the kingdom of God with people who live in a different kingdom. They live in the kingdom of darkness. And you're entering into that kingdom and you're presenting them with a whole different set of issues that they may not have considered or may previously have rejected. So he says, you know, if, if I'm comfortable with the culture, if there's nothing about the culture that I'm part of that doesn't, that grieves me, if there's nothing about the culture I'm part of that doesn't create conflict with, for me, then I become really acclimated to it and I fit into it too well. He goes on again, says, don't be well adjusted to your culture you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, number one, fix your attention on God. And you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Part of what Peterson was trying to say, and I, and I certainly think Scripture says, is that once we make that decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ, God is going to begin addressing things in your life. He's going to begin speaking into your life. 
And the problem is that sometimes we want God to speak, but only kind and comforting things. I don't want God speaking things to me that I would prefer to pretend aren't there. That I don't want God confronting me with jealousy and pride and hate and envy and all the rest of those ugly behaviors that are part and parcel of all of our natures. And yet God says, if you're going to give evidence to the world out there that you truly are a follower of me, that I have truly touched you, then it's going to come out in a way that should be recognizable. In my first book, one of the statements I have in there that I think is a, a, a truism is, if the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference, what difference does it make? I mean, that's the whole point. God is supposed to make a difference in my life. <laughs> If he's real, he's making a difference in my life. And so the question becomes, when I see things in my life that God wants me to resolve, that God wants me to have a resolution in the spirit where I'm saying, God, this is something that I want to really alter in my life, then we begin to find ourselves kind of perplexed because how do I go about that? Well, it's important, I think, for us to understand that it's God's plan to change you. It's God's plan to change you. And it'll be your, His plan for your life, your entire life. The term we use it theologically is called being sanctified. Sanctified. You see, when I asked Christ into my heart, I instantaneously became justified. The word means I'm justified by faith. My faith in Christ brought me justification. I'm in just relationship with God, that God simply has forgiven me my sins and I stand clean before Him without spot or blemish. God has forgiven me. And from that moment on, I go from that instantaneous experience to a lifetime journey called sanctification where God begins to do a work of separating me to Himself. That God begins to draw me into an increasingly exclusive relationship with Him through His Holy Spirit. That I increasingly see myself as being in Christ and no longer into the stuff I was into before I got saved. And that whole process is, is an idea of, of, of change. In fact, he's, when he tells us at the end of our lives, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will all be changed. That the last thing that God says is, I will put off this body, and he will robe me in a new one, whose passions are not like the passions of my life now, but rather the passions of my life are to do the will of God, to know God, to worship God, to be in His presence. That there will be no more temptations because I will be one with the Father. The question we have to come up against really is uh, what Jesus simply said. He says, if anyone would get after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's why Paul said, I die daily. I die every, every day I have to wake up and I have to make a decision. Am I going to try to pump myself up all day long or am I going to begin by saying, God, I surrender myself. I yield myself to you today. I give you permission. I used to pray, Lord, lead and direct me through this day. You know what I discovered 
He's always trying to lead and direct me. My prayer now is, Lord, let me be aware enough to follow you wherever you lead me. Let me just be yielded to what you want because my problem isn't that God isn't clear in what he wants. My problem is that when I hear clearly what he wants, I often say, uh, I don't think so. Not today. Not now. Maybe later on. Instead of simply saying, God, your will be done. So how do we bring about that change? How do we in a way, go through the process that we began to become, I don't know, I hate to even use the word happiness because happiness means that I'm pleased with my circumstance. Somebody's happy when everything's going the way you want it to go. Have you ever had anything in your life ever go exactly the way you wanted it to go? <laughs> I never have. I mean, I, I've had some great times, and a lot of times I've had these serendipitous moments. You know what that means. Something happens that you hadn't expected and it's very good and you're happy about that. I didn't see that coming. Praise God. <laughs> but there are a whole lot of things that happen that you say, you know, I didn't plan for that. I didn't prepare for that. I, I didn't see that coming. And when we get disappointed or surprised in a negative sense, our emotional state begins to fall off very quickly and we become unhappy. That's not what I want. So I, it's more than just trying to figure out how do I become happy in my life. It's more important, how do I have joy? Because joy is different than happiness. Joy is the settled sense of peace and contentment and even pleasure despite what's going on around me. You know, it's like knowing the final score to the game beforehand. Now, some of you say, oh, don't spoil it for me. I got to confess, especially the Northwest teams, sometimes, I mean, they, they wait to the very last minutes or seconds of the game to win. And sometimes they don't. And it's nervous wreck. You can tell me, call me and tell me what the score is so that I can sit there and watch the drama unfold and be relaxed. Well, I know they're going to pull it out. You know, today there's a, a team here in the Northwest going to be playing, and, and, and they should win, but that, that's never a promise, right? And if I know the score now, I'll probably go home after church and sit down and enjoy the game, saying, oh, I can hardly wait to see how they kill these guys. But in Christian love, of course. And It's always embarrassing when you see the other team praying. You know, it's always... <laughs> well, what I'm saying is that joy is that emotion that you have, that inner peace, that contentment, that settledness that's there because you do know how the game ends. You do know how your life is going to transpire. You know that in the end, God who promises, I will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are pursuing His purpose for their life. That you can look at your life and say, the ball just got fumbled. The ball just got intercepted. They've just scored on us, and now we're trailing. I mean, you can apply that to anything in your life. And yet, if you know at the end that you're going to win... It doesn't destroy your life. Your emotions don't go up and then go down and go up and go down because you know 
then in the end, you're going to win. It's not some kind of stoical response to life where you kind of numb your emotions so that like a stoic you say, well, it doesn't matter anymore. I don't really care. No, it matters because we are more than conquerors. We are more than victors. We know that we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We know that there are certain and unchangeable promises that God has set before us. That's why even thinking of this New Year's Eve prophecy update that I do, one of the things that's striking me is how strident and angry so many Christians are becoming because they see people doing things that are fulfilling the biblical prophecies. And I'm going, but don't you understand? <laughs> Jesus said, this is going to happen. Why are you getting mad about it? Do you want him not to do it? Do you want him, oh Lord, delay your coming because I'm really enjoying my life here as long as the government doesn't destroy it through their stupid policies. <laughs> that makes sense. When Jesus said, when you see these things coming, lift up your eyes and know that your redemption is drawing near. That we should, the worse it gets, the more joyful we should get. Can you, did you read what they just did? Wow! <laughs> We're out of here. But I hear so many Christians going, I can't believe that. Oh, Obama. <laughs> so beautiful. No, friends. How do we come to this place where we know the joyfulness in our life? That we don't come to the beginning of each new year or the end of the one before and just say, man, I... I hated all of that, but instead to look with joyful anticipation to what God has in store. Well, there's kind of five things that popped out to me. I hope they make sense. I think it begins by understanding that real change comes when we decide that relationships are more important than resolutions or the acquisition of stuff. It's an interesting survey of uh, millennials, which are you know, young people between 35 and 20 years of age. And they asked them, what is the most important goal for you to reach in life? And they said 80% of them said making lots of money. 50% said being famous. And if you can become rich and famous, wow, <laughs> you know, you, you got it made. And yet, in a 75-year study by Harvard College, of, um, they followed the careers of young men from, from their early teens as they started into college for the next 75 years of life. Many of them are, some are 724 people that they followed, and some of them, about 90 of them, are still alive in their 90s. And they said, as you sit and ask him, what really made for happiness in your life. It wasn't fame and it wasn't money. You know what it was? It was relationships. It was relationships. And I think some of us who have been around the block a few times don't have any trouble understanding that because even the relationships that come as a consequence of fame and money aren't very good timber to build with. Because absent of those things, those relationships evaporate rather quickly. The issue of relationships begins with God, and that means, as, as Peterson said, to fix your attention on God. 
It begins when I receive Christ, because when I receive Him, the Holy Spirit comes inside of me. And what Paul said to the Corinthians, what you receive is the mind of Christ. By mind, literally, I think it means your lens upon the world, how you view the world. That it's, it's the difference between someone like me who right now looks at this blur of body types, I feel like some kind of French impressionist, and then I simply put it on my glasses and there's a clarity that I need, oh, I'm going to take it off, <laughs> there's a clarity that we begin to experience, right, that wasn't there and that's essentially the mind of Christ. Suddenly we receive Christ and we see life the way God created it to be, at least more clearly. And the more we walk with Him, the clearer that concept becomes. And that comes to us in various ways, not only by receiving the Holy Spirit, it comes to us through our own prayer experience as we engage God in our prayer life, as we read His Word and fill our minds with His perspectives, that it begins to change very quickly, not only relationship with God, but we begin to relate to others differently. That when someone talk to me about uh, an elected official that they were very angry about. All I could say is, you know, Scripture says that because he doesn't know Jesus, that he's been taken captive by the enemy to do the enemy's will. Getting mad at him because he's blind by sin doesn't help you, doesn't help him, and doesn't change the dynamic. You really should be praying for them if you're really that concerned. You should really be asking God to touch this person's life and that he might know because at the end of his days, he has a fate awaiting him that's terrifying in its dimensions. And that should be a bigger concern to us. That's why Paul said, pray for the king. It changes our relationship with others because one of the things we realize from Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for man to be alone but rather he says I, that God says I will make a companion who will help him. God created us for relationships and that's why he created this thing called the church, the body of believers, a community of faith but he meant it to be redemptive relationships, and not all relationships are redemptive. In fact, when Paul warns, he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. The word bad there means really bad in nature, bad in character, that when the character is flawed and you hang out with people who walk in a way that is flawed, you will begin to pick up their stink. Because good character, there's the idea of a gracious character, a character that's being formed by the grace of God in your life. And that's why a, a, a gracious relationship, a redemptive relationship follows Hebrews 10, 24, where he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and towards good deeds. What can we do to provoke people to want to love other people and to do those things that bring honor to God in the things that we do? You start applying that lens to your lifestyle, the things that you do on a daily basis, it will transform your perspectives. Is this loving for me to say this? Is this loving for me to act in this way? And the moment you start putting that standard up there, you step back and go, okay. I need to remediate my attitude right now. Is it something that someone's going to say, this is good? 
But secondly, it's understanding that it's about God's power, not willpower. We get a lot of willpower stuff going on there. Why do we pray? Well, God, by His Spirit, opens up your eyes and says, you know, this is an area where I want to work in your life. We need to stop and start saying, God, address this in my life. Now, this is a daily thing for me, at least. I find every day as I'm spending my devotional time with the Lord in the morning, I read something and it speaks to my life and I realize, God, there's an area where I struggle. I pray, Lord, that you would give me the power to change. And you start praying that prayer day after day after day. You know what happens? You're just simply inviting the Holy Spirit to come into your life, to wash and to cleanse you from that thing, and to begin to change the attitude of your heart. That thirdly, it's, it's, it's about my praying, not my seeking or making promises. In John 14, 14, he says, if you ask anything, ask for me anything in my name, I will do it. It's not by me simply saying, God, I'm going to be different. I'm going to change. Um, I'm not going to be different, and I'm not going to change, but I'm going to ask God to change me so that I can be different. It's His power moving through you. That fourthly, it's, it's about His priorities and not what I consider to be my prizes. This is where we struggle, isn't it? When John says again, this is, a, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There's a caveat. Is it according to His will? Uh, Solomon said in Proverbs, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And somebody says, see, I'll, do, I'll delight in God, and He'll give me what I want. Here's the catch. I found when I truly delight in the Lord, the desires of my heart change. And I start wanting what He wants me to want. Because you begin to discover that, as, as Milo Favor put it so many years ago in song, he said, pleasing you is what pleases me. That something changes inside of us, delighting to do the will of God. I delight to do what is pleasing in His sight. That I began to pray as Jesus said we should pray in Matthew 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again in verse 33 of that same chapter of Matthew 6. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's an amazing dynamic. I mean, it's counterintuitive. Lord, I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to pour myself into pursuing you. And you will take care of everything in my life that needs to be taken care of. What an amazing promise. But it's also, fifthly, about being patient and not being perfect. I love a passage in Exodus 23 when God is bringing Israel to the land of Canaan to conquer it, and He says this to them, I will not drive them out, their enemies out, in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Literally, he's saying to you, if I just drove them out in front of you, the land would overwhelm you and consume you. But little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Um, I know that if you and I were to have a very honest conversation right now, if we we're going to sit and you just to get really transparently honest with me, you'd feel so safe with me that you could tell me the stuff that you don't tell anybody Okay, And we'd get really transparently honest about that dynamic in your life. 
you would probably say, I just want this to be out of my life now. I don't want to be this guy, that gal anymore. I want to be changed right now. I don't want to be that anymore. Don't feel bad. We all have that. If we have an honest relationship with God, we have something that we sit back and say, Jesus, this is like a besetting sin in my life, the way the writer of Hebrews put it, and I want it gone. Well, why doesn't God just pull it out of your life? Because God uses those irritants to build things in us. He, built, he allows those irritants to be there because it, it develops something in us spiritually that could not come any other way. And you'll find that His victory comes in many cases little by little by little. Oh, there are things in my life that God broke just like that. When I gave my life to Christ, uh, there was a whole list of very obvious sinful lifestyle things that just were gone. I mean, I just don't want to, no attraction. You know, people say, ever feel like getting stoned again? Absolutely not. Well, it's legal. Yeah, but it's not smart. And I don't think it's fun. I, I, I don't see any benefit in, in going back into a cloudy mind, you know. No, those kind of things never, never were attracted to me. I mean, never, never entered my mind once to say, how can I score a joint? But I'll tell you what, uh, there are other things that are much harder to get out of your life. Resentments, bitternesses, anger, jealousy, pride, the things that Paul said, these are the works of the flesh. Those things are really, really difficult to find victory over. And that's where you find that God gives you that victory little by little by little in your life. And as you come to those same issues, and that's what happens, you start coming to them over and over again. And I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, I just, I just can't get past my hatred, my envy, my resentment, uh, and because and so-and-so did this to me, and I just can't seem to get past it, and I just, and, and the answer is that it only goes away as you seek God and confess it to be sin over and over and over again. As you continually come before the presence of God and saying, God, forgive me for what I feel. Forgive me for the lack of forgiveness that's in my heart. Forgive me for the lack of forgiveness that's in my heart. Because you forgave me. And it's interesting how God then begins to show you how much you have been forgiven. And suddenly their transgression begins to pale in comparison. And it's interesting. I found that once I realize how much I've been forgiven, it's so much easier to forgive other people. Because I do not want the same principle applied to me that I have been applying to someone else. I don't, want, I don't want God to be as unforgiving to me as I can be towards other people. I want God to forgive me of my sins. But that, those things become lifetime battles because you're going to find yourself confronted with them and they're going to go away little by little by little. And they need to be prayed over. They need to be things that you put down on prayer lists in your Bible and you come back to them over and over again and say, Lord, please remove this from my life. Please change this in me. Please alter this dynamic. And suddenly, over time, you find yourself responding differently. 
So that instead of having to come to the end of the year and saying, you know, as I look back and survey the past year, I really see how I've just dropped this ball and screwed this up and messed this up and created this problem. That instead of doing that once a year, you learn how to do it every day. Romans 13.8, Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. In other words, being in debt to somebody and, and ignoring the fact and not paying them back is, is sin. Having, uh, having the ability to repay a debt and not being willing to do it is greed and, and it's sinfulness. And he says, don't ever do that. Don't ever be obligated to somebody and have the ability to repay them and, and refuse to do so. But at the same time, he says, but there is one debt that you owe that you will never satisfy, and that's the debt the continuing, unending, day-by-day, hour-by-hour debt to love other people. And for some reason, I don't know about you. <laughs> I do know about you because you're kind of like me. But there's some reason there's, there's this permission I give to myself at various times and places not to continue to meet that obligation. We give ourselves permission to saying, it's okay not to love them not to pray them. It's okay to disparage them. It's okay to do whatever we do. And those are things we have to come against every day and confess. But that's where the most monumental changes take place in our life. That's where character becomes transformed. That's where we wake up one day and realize, you know, I'm not who I used to be. And in fact, that's when other people around you saying, man, you have changed. I just see this change in you. But it's because we realize in the end of the day, what are those things that I fall into? They're the things that destroy relationships. And God is all about getting you to heal those relationships because when it's all said and done, when you're laying on your deathbed, what you're going to think about is not your goals and accomplishments and all the rest of it. You're going to think about relationships. The older I get, the more I... I, I, I mourn over the loss of relationships. The more I pray that God makes me a better husband, a better father, a better grandfather, a better friend, the more I value my friendships. That's a good life. Father God, I pray that you'd speak into our lives by your Spirit, that these things that I've attempted to communicate, Lord, would somehow gel with what you're doing in each and every one of us. Then at the end of the day, Lord, that we want you to make a difference in our life, not only so that the world around us can see the power of God and what it can do in a man's heart or soul or life, Lord, but also how it changes our relationships. Lord, there's a reason why you didn't just take us to heaven when we got saved, why you left us here to continue to pump blood and suck air. You left us here, Lord, because you want to live your life through us. You want the reality of Jesus to become expressed through us. And we admit, Lord, we, we fall short of that. We always will. We'll never be as sinless and glorious as Jesus was. But Lord, you said there can be a fragrance that begins to come from our lives. 
The people around us began to sense that there's a working of God in us that's real. It's the beauty of holiness. That even as our bodies may weaken and age, there is a beauty of holiness that, that can express itself from us. And there's something about beauty. As Ignatius said, that beauty is something that brings us pleasure when we look upon it. I pray, God, that you bring that beauty of holiness into our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, I invite you to come on up and partake of the elements of communion. If you want prayer, we'll be available up here in front to pray with you. But as always, I just encourage you to respond to God in whatever regard or any way he's been speaking into your life. It can be painful to come into a context like this and to have God kind of peel away your heart and, and expose to yourself things that you've been trying to not have to deal with. It's a painful thing. And, and I, I'm not sorry for that, but I do understand it. But let me tell you, the only way to really get free from that pain is to honestly come to God and say, God, it's not by my willpower, it's by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's not by might, it's not by strength, but it's by your Spirit. God, I, I invite you to come and begin to address these things in my life and bring healing. Trust me, he won't be rude. He won't be, he won't be abusive. He doesn't want to expose you so that everybody sees what your issue is or your shame is. But he does simply say, invite me to come and I will do in you so much more than you ever thought possible. I will glorify myself through you. I will free you from things that hold you bound and captive. That I'll let you begin to experience joy. Joy in the midst of whatever's taking place in your life. I just encourage you to step forward and receive his grace today.